This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. There's a story, perhaps mostly anecdotal, but but still a valuable story nonetheless, about Mother Teresa and how she was meeting with different people to fundraise and to, to communicate the mission of the missionaries of charity. And she was asked, well, how can we do the sort of work that you do, you know, but without becoming a nun? Which is kind of a funny question because the work that Mother Teresa St. Teresa of Calcutta, as we know her now, did was because she was a nun, not the other way around. She didn't do charity work and then become a nun. She was a nun. She had a religious order. She had a love of God and then was able to serve the poor. One flowed from the other. The story goes that Mother Teresa looked at this person and very simply said three words, find your Calcutta. This became a bit of a a mantra in the world, and still is to this day. Find your Calcutta. Find the places and the people that you can serve in your particular circumstances. And do that. Do that good work. That's what this new season of Ave Explorers is all about, what our, our new series, which launches next week with emails and video content, but our episodes, of course, for the podcast beginning today, that's what our new series is about. How we can find our Calcuttas, how we can put our faith into action and serve those in need. When we talk about service, we often think, okay, well, I'm going to get my hands dirty or I'm going to load some cans in a car or I'm going to build a house or I'm going to hop on a plane and go to a third world country and help people there. In this series, we look at how finding our Calcuttas, putting our faith into action, happens oftentimes right where we are, and more importantly, is usually needed right where we are. As we began to prep this series and create the content and speak to our writers and contributors, one of the things we wanted to do at the very beginning was think about the big picture. Not just, okay, well, what is faith in action? That episode is certainly coming in the series and, and talk about it from a very practical perspective and unpack Catholic social teaching, but, but really, maybe even why. Why would we need to even think about this sort of topic? Not just at the present cultural moment, but for ourselves, walking along this journey to, to hopefully one day get to heaven. Why is putting our faith into action here on earth important now? And as we were kind of praying through how we would want to launch the series, as Providence would have it, I got an email. An email from somebody who works with Dr. Scott Hahn. Yes, that Dr. Scott Hahn, the one that's written over 40 books and who's very well known for his teaching on scripture. Dr. Scott Hans, the Father Michael Scalen, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's someone I've long admired, and this email popped into my inbox. Would you like to interview Dr. Scott Hahn? And I immediately replied, yes, uh, that would be great. About what? And the person joked back, well, whatever you would want, it'd be your interview. 
And that's when I realized his new book, Hope to Die, which comes out, you can get now, in fact, which is all about the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body, might be the perfect entry episode into the season. Because rather than just simply begin talking about Catholic social justice teachings and the principles of the church and the work that is necessary, maybe painting the big picture of how doing this work makes us holy and prepares us for a holy death could be the perfect entry into it. Could really be the way that this conversation starts. And so that's what we're doing today. We're sitting down with Dr. Scott Hahn, somebody who's very well known for the books that he has written and the talks that he has given and the work that he has done in teaching thousands upon thousands of people theology around the world. But he and I get to have this excellent conversation really about a couple of things. Scripture, because Dr. Scott Hahn is a scripture scholar at heart. His book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, and the Corporal and Spiritual Works of Mercy, and how these two things stand together to fuel us in our Christian journey and prepare us for a good and holy death, which truly celebrates and participates in the resurrection of Christ. This entire season of Ave Explores is, of course, one that we're very, very thrilled and excited about. Season five launching today with this episode with Dr. Scott Hahn and the rest of the Ave Explores content coming beginning next week. You can find all the information about how to sign up and get the emails of the content, excellent content, right into your email inbox down in the show notes. Click on over to AveMariaPress.com and you will find all the info on where to sign up and get involved. Without further ado, an episode, an interview, a conversation with someone I've long admired, Dr. Scott Hahn. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Hahn. We're, we're so excited to have you on the show. You're so welcome. I am grateful for the invitation. Yeah. So tell us, I think most people listening know who you are, but tell us who you are, where you are, what you're doing, um, and what you're excited about right now in, in your work. Okay, so we're living here in Steubenville, Ohio, where we have been for 30 years, teaching at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and also working closely with a team of about 25 to 30 in the St. Paul Center. And this passion of ours is a shared excitement uh, as we try to promote biblical literacy for lay people and biblical fluency for clergy. This pandemic has brought us to a whole new level of dependence upon God but also a whole new level of excitement. Uh, Last year, I traveled 62 times for various engagements, the most ever in the last Mm -hmm. 30 years, the very year I turned 62, and then suddenly the lights went out, or at least the airports were shut down. And I'm a little reluctant to admit just how much I've loved not traveling. Amen to that. Yes, But there have been probably closer to 70 opportunities like this to be on Zoom, on Skype, on EWTN, on Catholic Answers, all of these things, and to renew friendships. And it's like, how good can it get? This is really fun. And we have two seminarian sons who've been home for most of this time. And so for the first time ever as a family, we've been praying the divine office, morning prayer, evening prayer, and that sort of thing. They have their summer assignments now. 
And it will be on June 5th, that Friday, that our son Jeremiah will be ordained to the transitional diaconate wow. for the Diocese of Steubenville. And so we're very excited about that. Yeah. Family and friends are coming in. And we, we our parish has opened up and we're going to have you know, social distancing, but we're still going to have over 100 people present. And so That's please wonderful. pray for Jer as he yeah. enters into this diaconal ministry. And the day after his ordination, he is going to be preaching at our parish on Saturday. And Ugh. we're just jumping out of our skin. <laughs> so as, a, as, as the Bible guy with a deacon son, are you going to give him any pointers on, <laughs> on what he should be saying or how to unpack the scriptures? I'm not sure he needs much more. He <laughs> and his brother Joe are just on fire for the Lord and the word of God. And so I feel as though, in my experience, most of the time, people who have been my former students end up becoming my tutors. And I suspect <laughs> that will be true for Jeremiah, as well as Joseph, who's just a couple of years behind him. And our oldest son, uh, Michael, our firstborn, is uh, Dr. Han the Younger, and he's a mm -hmm. professor of scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And wow. he most definitely has become my tutor, yeah. almost intimidatingly <laughs> so. He's a professor of scripture, Old Testament in particular, and uh, his grasp of St. Thomas Aquinas' biblical theology leaves me in the dust, but I love to choke on his dust. I bet. I, I'm, I'm struck by your love of scripture. I mean, it comes across the screen. I've read it in your books. Why was biblical literacy, as you put it, why was that what you wanted to pursue? Like, what, what was it that made that the project of your professional and personal life? Well, I go back to the age of 14 or so when I was converted out of a, a lifestyle that most people would describe as juvenile delinquency. <laughs> uh, the Allegheny County Juvenile Court most definitely described it that way. And I experienced the grace of conversion and the power of the Holy Spirit lit a fire in my heart for the Bible. Before, I fell asleep trying to read it. Afterwards, I couldn't put it down. And so I don't feel like as though I, I made a choice. I feel as though the choice was made for me, then the gift was given. And the study of sacred scripture is what led me through college to seminary into ministry as a Presbyterian pastor, but then discovering the patristic treasury of sources from the early fathers and how they would always see the New Testament concealed in the Old and the Old Testament revealed and fulfilled in the New, to paraphrase St. Augustine, made my heart catch on fire even more. And all of that led me into the crisis of faith that caused me to enter into the Catholic Church way back at the Easter Vigil of 1986. But I, at that point, it wasn't like subtracting the Bible in any way. It was more like multiplying scripture exponentially by discovering its true home is the Eucharistic liturgy, the church which gave us the canon, but also the church that showed me that when you read the New Testament closely, not only do you see the fulfillment of the old, but you discover that the only thing Jesus ever called the New Testament was not a document, but the blessed sacrament. In Luke twenty-two twenty, he doesn't say, write this in remembrance of me. He says, do this. We call this the Eucharist, but he called it the New Testament, the only time he ever used the phrase in Luke twenty-two twenty. And Luke's mentor, St. Paul, used that phrase for the first time in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. And so to discover that the New Testament was a sacrament for decades before it became a document, according to the document, made the document come alive even more, as well as did it illuminate the sacraments. So I want to convince all Catholics that the Bible is not like playing an away game, you know, in your opponent's stadium. <laughs> it is the consummate home game. 
And so if you just stay half awake in the liturgy, you're going to hear practically all of the Bible, every period of salvation history. And, you know, the connections that the fathers made are also now made by the Sunday lectionary, even if the homilist doesn't always see them or say them. But that's sort of why the St. Paul Center exists, so that you come to our website and you'll find resources for beginners, intermediate, advanced. But it's not just biblical literacy for Catholic lay people. It's also biblical fluency for our clergy. But the common denominator is reading the Bible from the heart of the church. And the heart of the church is Christ's heart in the Eucharist, where scripture comes alive. And I mean, I could go on and on, especially because... (laughs) As you have surmised, I haven't been in the classroom for almost three months, and I am so chomping at the bit. I feel like a, I feel like a mountain filled with volcanic lava ready to explode. So we need some you know, YouTube lives with Dr. Han in front of a chalkboard. I think I think people would pay yes. big bucks for that. Um, I it's there's so much there, and I, I love this idea that we read with the heart of the church and that we study not just because we, we want to be able to rattle off passages and impress our friends. I don't know that it would impress, you know, non-Christians in 2020, but, but our Christian friends, but we do so because it's what draws us closer to Christ. I mean, that's, it, we all know the famous ignorance of scriptures, ignorance of Christ quote. Um, but how then, and, and this will shift us to our, our second part of our conversation. How then do I, a lay woman mom who does ministry, but also has to cook dinner every night and make sure that the toilet paper is filled in the bathrooms. How do I allow scripture to become part of my daily life? And why should I want it to be? Well, you know, as you just said, quoting St. Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so for that reason alone, you want to learn how to love Christ with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength as he has loved us. But I would also say this, that, uh, Ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Holy Eucharist is a form of biblical ignorance, Mm. Uh, probably not for many Catholics, but for a lot of non-Catholics who characterize themselves as Bible Christians. And so I think it takes away our sense of insecurity. We won't feel threatened. We're not going to enter into conversations with non-Catholics on the defensive. We're not going to try to win an argument, but we will try to win our brothers and sisters Mm. into a greater fullness of faith that is their family as well as ours. We call it the Catholic Church, but it's not just like the biggest and oldest denomination that's bigger and better than yours. It is the family of God, and it stretches from heaven to earth. You know, the center of the Catholic Church is not the Vatican there in Rome. It really is heaven where Jesus, Mary, and the saints don't form another denomination, but really are the the Catholic Church, the universal church. I would also say this, that in communicating our faith to our children, we've got to become somewhat bilingual. We've got to be culturally fluent so we can speak in the language of our own day and so that our kids can relate to us and see that you don't have to be kind of odd or ostracize yourselves to really live the faith. On the other hand, if we become biblically literate or perhaps even better fluent, we will discover that the, the Bible is the lingua franca of the church universal, not only around the planet, but down through the ages and most especially in the liturgy. And so by the time we and our kids and our grandkids become so capable of speaking about what it means to be a child of God, what it means to call God Father, why Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, who Mary is as our mother, and how St. Joseph enters into not only the Holy Family, but our families as well, suddenly this becomes more than pious rhetoric, more than just Catholic doctrine, 
more than our talking points, it really becomes some of the most precious gems that constitute something of a holy heirloom that we want to treasure. Blow off the dust from these stones and we'll realize, wow, these are precious gems. And that isn't hyperbole. That isn't like the spicy hot rhetoric of some overzealous convert who can't tone it down. It really is truer than my words can convey. And it's something that is just so objectively real that even when I don't subjectively feel warm and fuzzy about the mysteries of faith, those sacred mysteries are just pulsating with a life of their own that means we don't have to conjure up the emotions. All we've got to do is open up the eyes of faith and we're like, wow, what better gift could I give to my six kids and our 19 grandkids than these sacred mysteries? These will get us all the way home and help us to celebrate a reunion like no family vacation could ever be. You, uh, my daughter has a tendency, she's only two and a half, to, to steal Bibles from my office oh, and we find them in the playroom. And so I've had to like hide a couple copies <laughs> so she won't grab them. And oh. if you ask her, well, what are you reading? She looks, she goes, the Bible, as if like I'm the dumbest person in the world for asking. She can't read it and there's not pictures inside, but she's Katie, seen us reading it. And it makes me so proud. <laughs> Katie, may your tribe increase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope. Well, I'm pregnant, so let's let's you know, pray will, for that. Right? Um, you you mentioned that when we get to heaven, it's a family reunion then, right. um, and that it's not this foreign experience, but it's actually what we're made for. And that's really what your new book, Hope to Die, is about. That we are longing for home, and and really, and I, I'm I'm struck by the book. I've been working my way through it because there's so much in there. How there's a way to prepare for death and there's a way to understand death. So tell me a little bit about what inspired this book. I mean, in the, in the canon that is Dr. Scott Hahn's shelf, why did you decide now's the time to write a book about death? Well, you know, you think about hope, you know, hope to die. Of the three theological virtues supernaturally infused to our soul as God's children, faith, hope, and love, we hear a lot about the faith, keeping it, spreading, and all of the rest. And obviously love is the highest of the three. But I can't help but wonder if hope doesn't get, you know, short shrift. It's sort of the stepsister of the three, the Cinderella of those virtues. <laughs> and I think we need it now more than ever before. But it's not just hope to die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. It is the resurrection because I think that also is an unsung hero when it comes to what Christ has done. Ordinarily, I think most people think of the resurrection as first a historical event you know, an empty tomb, eyewitnesses, that sort of thing. And so you might not have caught it on your camcorder, but it is true as a historical event. Second, and even more, a miracle, because this was brought about by divine causality. Uh, third, the fulfillment of prophecy in accordance with the scripture raised on the third day, the vindication of his innocence, you know, an apologetic proof for his divinity. But it's sort of, we don't recognize that, no, the resurrection of Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity, the resurrection of his humanity is the turning point. It is literally the hinge on which our redemption turns. And so his body is not just resuscitated like Lazarus's. It is divinized, and not just for himself because he was divine before he became man. So why go to all of the trouble of coming down to earth, being born of a virgin, you know, teaching, healing, suffering, dying, and then rising again? Whew, I'm glad that's over with. Well, if you're not going to get any more glory out of it, then why do it to give all of his divine glory to us? That's why the resurrection is the, 
the humanity that he got from us is now divinized, but he returns it to us. He took what is ours, humanity, to give us what is his, divinity. And so the Eucharist, it's the same body that was in the upper room on Thursday when he instituted the sacrament. It's the same body that was hanging on the cross, buried in the tomb on Saturday. But what we tend to forget is that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the resurrection because the Eucharist is the resurrected body of Christ. It's resurrected, it's ascended, it's enthroned, it's divinized, but it's not an it, it's a he. In glory, he comes to us as food. Now, when I eat ordinary food, a burger, fries, salad, whatever, I assimilate it to my body and it ceases to be what it was. But not with this. When I receive Holy Communion, he assimilates my mortal flesh and yours to his glorified body. And so he fulfills the promise or he sets into motion the means by which he will bring about the fulfillment of that pledge that he gave a year before to the disciples at the Bread of Life Discourse in John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. I'm going to digest you. I'm going to assimilate your mortal flesh to my immortal humanity so that this Eucharist becomes the instrument by which your bodies are going to be sown corruptible, perishable, but raised incorruptible and imperishable like mine. And so it's like, whoa, I didn't realize, you know, it's like that word doesn't mean what you think it means. You know, resurrection is so much more than we realize. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Dr. Scott Hahn about his new book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. So you can tell Dr. Hahn's quite passionate about scripture, and I, I love that. And in our next segment in this interview, we talk more about that as well as the corporal and spiritual works of mercy standing together. If you're enjoying this interview, you'll enjoy the rest of the Ave Explorers content we have coming in this Faith in Action series. We have articles and videos from people like Michael Gormley, Father Josh Johnson, Sister Anu Stay from the Sisters of Life, Mark Mary Ames, Father Mark Mary Ames from the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. We have conversations um, with Holy Cross missionary priests, Father Sandberg and Father Thomas, priests who were on the front lines of doing social justice work, as well as teaching us what this is all about. If you want to receive all of that content straight into your email inbox, click on over to AveMariaPress.com. The link is down in the show notes. You can sign up for the weekly emails and receive all of this excellent content straight to your inbox. Okay, back to the show with Dr. Scott Hahn. Mm-hmm. We, and, and we long for that, whether we realize it or not. I mean, you talk about that in the book, there's this, there's this innate understanding that we're made for more than what this world has to offer. And we desire that. And so, I mean, it's almost like the convert who first gets to receive communion for the first time and, and they walk away and they're like, I had no idea what I was missing, but now I, I can't live without it. Uh, versus the cradle Catholics who, you know, many of us have taken it for granted for years and years. And, and then when we're taught what it truly is, all of a sudden there's this, well, I can't survive without it. And I desperately long for it. And I need, I think many of us kind of feel that way during quarantine and pandemic, this, this hunger and this thirsting for it. You talk in the book um, how Christ's coming answers our big questions about what it means to be a person. Um, Because in him and in the resurrection of Christ, we see who we're meant to be. Why, Why should I care? Why should anybody who's listening care what kind of person Christ wants me to be? Like, why is that something that I need to keep in the front of my mind? Other than I want to get to heaven and I want to have the prize of, you know, not being damned to hell. Why is that important for me to contemplate and think about in my daily life? 
Yes. Okay. Well, this, I mean, this, this question ties in with the other ones too, because, you know, I had my reasons for writing the book. God had his, I had my own sense of timing, (laughs) you know, Easter of 2020, God had a much better sense of timing. Mm -hmm. So it would come out during this coronavirus crisis, but there's a certain pedagogy to this pandemic that I would never have imagined. And it echoes the words you just said a moment ago, because my daughter is a cradle catcher. But she called me a few weeks ago in the midst of this and said, Dad, I have never found myself having such a holy longing for Holy Communion in all of my life. I never realized how much I took the Mass for granted. And I'm like, girl, you have no idea how you just blessed your dad. And you're echoing millions of other Catholics who now are kind of waking up to what they have taken for granted for so long. And I can't help but think that this is the bait on the hook by which God is going to reel us in and show us, this is why I made you. You know, not the mm-hmm. pandemic, but the resurrection, the Holy Eucharist. You know, I have so much more in store for you than you would settle for, for yourselves and your loved ones. You know, it's like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's never entered into the mind of man what God has in store for us. And he's quoting Isaiah. So it's not just the New Testament revealed in Christ. It is the Old Testament law and the prophets as well. This isn't plan B. We think we kind of know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. And that's what God has in store for us. And when we take it in, or at least we try, we realize no wonder he hates sin. It's because he loves us. It's not because he stops loving us. It's because he can't stop loving us. It's like a little kid who's hoarding pennies in his hands when his father is offering him $100 bills that he can't grasp because he won't let go of these finite goods of this temporal order of this natural life when God has something so much greater. And this is there in the beginning. This is plan A, as it were. And for us to discover it the hard way, you know, God is patient and we are proud. And so we've got to learn to distrust ourselves more in order to trust him more. And it's a painful process, but like Nautilus taught us 30 years ago, no pain, no gain, you know, no cross, no crown. Yeah, you know, if if there's not pain in this process of learning it, it's it's almost like it's too easy. You know, and it's not to say that there have to be crises and tragedies within our life, but sometimes they help. Sometimes they illuminate to us his goodness rather than our own shortcomings or how we desperately need him because of our shortcomings. Oh, let me just, I mean, emphasize that point because yeah. we almost always think of pain as punitive mm-hmm. and we don't understand why would God punish us because we didn't even understand why our parents punished us, you know, but we understand it when we punish our kids because we don't stop loving them. We express our love, even if it's not perfect, like God does, they don't feel the love, you know, but the fact is pain is not reducible to punishment. Pain really involves a, a mysterious way of learning love because it's easy to say, I love you in the back seat of a car to drive in or wherever else you might find yourself. But the proof that the love is genuine is, are you willing to sacrifice what you want? Are you willing to defer the gratification mm-hmm. of the flesh? And that pain is really what trans pain is transformed into passion. When we sacrifice present pleasures and defer gratification, then suddenly, not only do we prove that the love is genuine, but we purify the love, and then we perfect the love, and God isn't up in heaven saying, wow, huh, I'm glad you thought of that, because that was the design from the beginning. Pain is not primarily punitive. You know, pain is really the way in which 
we learn love. You know, in Hebrews chapter 5, though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And if that's true for Jesus, why would it be less true for us? He was perfect to begin with. He basically transformed our humanity into an instrument of divine love. We call that the Eucharist. But in the process, he didn't bear a cross to exempt us. No, he bears a cross for us, but then bestows crosses on us. And again, not in spite of his love, but precisely because of it. And it's sort of like we want to say, God, we don't want to be loved that much. We're not even sure we want to learn how to love that much. But he's like, hey, I'm not letting you off the hook. Yeah, that's this is perfect then, because it, it leads to my next question. He bestows upon us a cross. And and we can look at the world, pandemic or not, and see people carrying heavy crosses, um, you know, the Catholic Church has this entire doctrine of Catholic social teaching that talks about entering into those crosses that people bear and loving people in their pain and sitting with them in their pain. And it's the concept of compassion with the passion that this person feels. How does my focusing on loving people in their pain help me then prepare for this holy death, for this hope that I'm supposed to have in the resurrection? How, how do those two things reconcile? Well, it's certainly when you see someone going through pain and come alongside of them in their passion, you have compassion. And not only does that help unite the two and make us one in Christ, but it also prepares us for our turn when it comes, when we have to undergo pain as well. So why did God set all of this in the motion in the first place? Because this was never designed to be our final destination. You know, as much as we would be content to live on earth forever, Again, it isn't plan B. And in the span of just 10 verses back in Genesis 2, God tried to make it pretty clear to our first parents when he breathed in Adam's nostrils the breath of life, we realized the first breath that our first father drew was not just air the, what, the way the animals were breathing. It was God's breath. It was God's spirit. And so the life that he had was not just human and natural. It was divine and supernatural. Mm-hmm. So the 10 verses later when he says, you can eat from all other trees but one, For the day you eat of that, you'll surely die. Well, what kind of death was he talking about? Because when they ate, they didn't drop dead, but they did commit a mortal sin. 1 John 5, 17 describes a sin unto death, and the word for death is thanatos, the same term used in Genesis 2, 17, because they committed spiritual suicide. When we prefer the finite and the natural to the infinite and the supernatural, that is already incipient idolatry. And so we snuffed out the life of God in their souls, they did, and they, they transmit human nature through, through generation. But what we as Catholics believe original sin is, is not what I thought as a Protestant, totally depraved infants are mm-hmm. born with. No, but we are born totally deprived of divine life. And so suddenly what Jesus says on occasions that seems so almost inane, you know, Jairus' daughter, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they, they were crying, and now they're jeering at him. He goes in. He raises her from the dead. But why, why poke the hornet's nest? Why not just say she's dead? Because what we think is death, physical and natural, for him is not the real fear of death. There is spiritual death, the loss of divine life. Lazarus, oh, he's just sleeping. Well, he'll wake up. He's dead. Well, why didn't you say so? We're too pious to admit how inane some of Jesus' remarks sound to us as they did to them. But his whole point is that there is life, then there is life. There's life that is bios, natural human. Then there's life that is zoe, that is spiritual and divine. I am the resurrection and the zoe. I am the bread of zoe. 
you know, you're settling for a natural life. I long to give you a divine life. Mm -hmm. And so our confronting death, our confronting our fear of death, we want to be healed of whatever illness that would lead to death and our loved ones to be healed as well. Christ will heal us to win our trust. But what he really wants to heal us of, I'm convinced, is of a disordered fear of physical suffering and mm -hmm. physical death when we ought to fear spiritual death, the loss of divine life through mortal sin. And so when we come alongside of other people in pain and we realize, wow, God is using them. Like I saw in my mother five years ago before she died. For months, she was in agony with stage four bone cancer. But I mean, it softened her heart. It brought her a joy that she had never known. And that brought joy to me when I sat by her bedside for nine hours. I didn't see it coming. I had theorized, I had lectured, I had written on it, but to find it in my mother, mm -hmm. oh my goodness. And I just, you know, the veil gets much thinner. It's pulled back and you realize death itself is the means by which God doesn't cause us to lose life. We really make our life a gift of love like Jesus so that we can get a greater gift of his own life and not just for myself, but for my mom and for my kids, for my bride, and for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like, who'd have thunk it? God alone. God <laughs> Only, alone. You know, to him be well, the I mean, glory. Just like he knew that releasing a book about fears of death was perfect in a time of, of pandemic. Amen, um, sister. Yes. I know, yes. It's the, this idea then of, of we in our human bodies, with this human life, with this soul that we long to, I don't want to say be divinized. I know that's not the proper terminology, but to become like God, right? Because no, that is Christ. the proper term. Theosis. Oh, well, good. Okay. The early church fathers, you know, the Mormons hijacked it, but we got to reclaim it. Because okay, well, we'll take it back. Our souls are divinized, but then like a slinky going down the stairs, our body catches up to our souls mm -hmm. and in a certain sense overtakes anything we ever wanted for our bodies or our loved ones. This is something that we can't keep to ourselves, right? I mean, you wrote a book about it, but like this I is mean, something we should be shouting from the rooftops. I mean, if you keep this to yourself, you are the stingiest, sadistic <laughs> miser on the planet. You know, and it isn't like, well, we're obliged to share the good news. Obliged. You know, I wrote in my Bible back in the 70s, when Scott Hahn shares the gospel with another sinner, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where he found the bread of life. But I was a Protestant at that point. I had no idea just what the bread of life entailed. You know, this is, this is what I was looking for when I was drunk or when I was high and when I was selling drugs. You know, I, I shouldn't have said that, but my mom has passed, and so I guess I can't. But, I mean, this is what everybody is looking for. You know, a supernatural high that won't go away. And even when you're feeling depressed, because we've had depression running in my family mm -hmm. for generations. I see it in myself. I see it in my kids. You know, but this this is a cure that isn't instead of good counseling or whatever medication you might need. But I mean, the supernatural doesn't dissolve or abolish mm -hmm. the natural. It heals it. It perfects it. But it also elevates us to a level that we didn't even know existed before. And so, yes, we've got to share this. No, we get to share this. <laughs> when we enter into people's pain, it's not just enough to hand them a McDonald's gift card or pay their rent for the month. It's also this desire to really share with them this, this transformative and good news, right? The social justice teachings of the church is not, okay, we'll just pay their bills and we'll make sure they have dinner. It's we're going to love them into heaven with us. 
That's right. I mean, we can't neglect the corporal works of mercy, but in a certain sense, it's much easier to perform the corporal works and get noticed. I mean, virtue signaling by Catholics is good. I mean, as far as it goes, but in a certain sense, when we perform the spiritual works of mercy, you know, the world doesn't applaud. It doesn't see the need to counsel sinners or to share the gospel and that kind of thing. So there really is no immediate profit from doing those. It's not either or, it's both and. Mm -hmm. But in a certain sense, we coordinate the natural and the supernatural precisely by subordinating the natural to the supernatural. Say that one more time, because it's so good. I want to make sure our listeners hear it. Yeah, I mean, we coordinate the human and the divine, not by confusing or by opposing. We coordinate by subordinating what is natural and human to what is divine and supernatural. They're not opposed, they're not separated, but they're easily confused or they're easily opposed, and the world tends to do both. And so we as Catholics have got to distinguish the life that is natural and human, the corporal works of mercy, from the life that is supernatural and divine, the spiritual works of mercy, not to separate and oppose them, but precisely to unite them. Like men and women are different, but the difference is not only complementarity, but fruitfulness like you now have in your own womb, like we've done now six times. It's like, again, only God could have designed it this way. And not just in the natural order, but all of that is like a curriculum by which we climb a ladder and ascend into heaven and realize God is a father like my dad could never be. And he's got a body for me that the weakest saint in heaven is going to be stronger and more agile than the greatest Olympic athlete on earth in history. And again, this isn't like religious rhetoric. This isn't holy hyperbole. This is what matters. I mean, if we mean what we say, I believe in God, the father almighty. I'm a father, but I'm anything but almighty. Mm -hmm. If I were almighty and all knowing and all loving, I'm not even sure then I could have dreamt this up. And so the, the articles of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed, I think, are like amethysts, rubies, emeralds, diamonds, and pearl, the pearl of great price. And my dad was a jeweler, so I kind of know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, this is, there's so much to unpack continually, but, but people can find more of this incredible concept and these ideas in the book, Hope to Die, which is available now. Um, I, I always ask everybody at the end, um, what's next? What are you doing next? What's the next project that we can expect from Dr. Scott Hahn post-coronavirus or even in the midst of this? Right. Well, I'm working on a book entitled It Is Right and Just. Mm. It's focusing on worship and the restoration of the social order, of civilization. And if it's right and just to worship God as our creator, then it's wrong and a serious injustice not to. And worship mm. is not just something I do personally, privately, inwardly. It's something that we do together, corporately, physically, publicly, because human nature is not just rational for the soul. We're also social animals. And as we've discovered with the social order being shut down practically, now that it's reopening, it's not just like starting the economy up again the way some conservatives talk. No, it's starting the social order up again. And the highest part of the social order is what the ancient Greeks called leitorgia. We translate that liturgy. Mm -hmm. And so we are a social body, a supernatural organism. And to give God worship is right and just. To not give him worship is wrong. And it's a huge injustice. Aquinas, quoting Cicero, the, the Roman pagan, would put it this way. 
that religion is in fact the highest moral virtue. Mm -hmm. And to not be religious or to be idolatrous or atheistic is actually the highest form of injustice because we owe God more and justice is paying back to others what we owe them. So I'm looking at this in a way that I think might be described as somewhat radical. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see that and to read that. And I think it could transform some hearts and some minds. Dr. Scott Hahn, thank you so much for taking oh. the time. Um, we're, we're thrilled that we got you. And uh, I hope people go buy the book. We'll have the link down in the show notes. So, so thank you so much. Oh, Katie, you are so <laughs> welcome. But I should thank you for the invitation. I mean, are we allowed to have this much fun? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if, if it takes quarantine to get you on Zoom, then I'll take that any day of the week for sure. Oh, amen, dear sister. Amen. <laughs> thank you so much. God bless you. I heard it once said by Bishop Frank Caggiano that the two most Catholic words in the world were both and and. And I think Dr. Scott Hahn captured that very well there in the last part of our interview, talking about the corporal and spiritual works of mercy standing together, what they are, why they are, and even in some sense, what they can do to help prepare us for a good and holy death, which celebrates and participates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our own bodies. Here at the beginning of this new Ave Explore series, we want you to know not only how excited we are about this content, but we want you to get involved by participating and signing up to receive all of the content, videos, emails, uh, articles, podcast episodes, saint biographies, challenges, and showcase pieces. This time around, we've shot for the moon. We've, um, we've created more than we ever have before to unpack this topic. We're not just talking about social justice, though from a, here's a definition, here's a thing that you can do, but really to tell the story, to tell the story of how this work is happening in the church and how we can become a part of it by knowing what it is, but also knowing how people are doing it. That's the real hope. That's what this deep dive is doing with this new Ave Explorer series. You can go down into the show notes and you can find the link where you can sign up to receive the content. AveMariaPress.com will have everything that you need. You'll get two emails a week, one on Sunday with the weekly schedule and one on Wednesday with all of the content. There will be pieces that are exclusive to social media, including live Instagram and YouTube interviews, um, as well as this podcast continuing articles and videos like you've become used to. In short, we've tried to, to create even more for what we think is perhaps one of the most important topics we've ever tackled. We hope you will join us in participating in reading this content and even maybe doing some of the challenge pieces which will center around the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So please consider joining us and signing up by going to avimariapress.com. As always, with this podcast on the podcast apps that you listen to, we would be grateful for a rating and a review so more people can find the show and listen to the content that we've created, including in all the other seasons on Mary, mental health, art, and architecture. So please continue to join us for this series. Sign up so you can get the content into your email inbox. And know that as we walk through this particular topic, faith in action, we want to really journey alongside you and unpacking it and learning the definition of it and in doing it. Thanks for joining us.